This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Michael Barone is a native of Michigan and at one time was identified with the Democratic Party. Barone's sister worked in the Michigan Department of Attorney General under Frank Kelly for years. Barone himself was the longtime co-author of the very esteemed Almanac of American Politics, He is now a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he is a senior editor at the Washington Examiner. Here's what he recently wrote, and this is the headline. Based on Biden's performance so far, there's trouble ahead for Democrats. I quote him here. On the surface, Joe Biden seems to be doing pretty well, but underneath... There are signs of problems, areas where partisan overstretch threatens the underpinnings of what some are hailing as the new order of things. Joe Biden enjoys a 54% average job approval rating, which is a good mark for a president in his midterm or facing re-election, but it's below the 100-day numbers meaning 100 days after he assumed office, of every post-World War II president except Donald Trump. Biden's 42% disapproval is higher than theirs and about equal to Trump's. That may understate things if, as the Cook Political Report's Amy Walder suggests, polls are undersampling Republican voters. The Deepening partisan divisions of the last quarter century are not over and done with. This is Michael Barone writing. I continue to quote, Biden's appeal to white non-college voters apparently remains limited. Thus, the retirement of downstate Illinois Representative Sherry Bustos, who was head of the House Democrats campaign committee for the disappointing 2020 cycle. Her district voted 58% for Barack Obama in 2012. It voted 50 to 48% for Trump last year, and she herself won by a margin of only 52 to 48%. Similarly, a moderate Democrat named Tim Ryan, who is a representative in Ohio, is leaving his Youngstown-Akron district for an iffy U.S. Senate run And suburban Pittsburgh's Connor Lamb, another moderate Democrat, may do so in Pennsylvania. He hasn't been helped by local Democratic environmental regulators whose decisions caused U.S. Steel to cancel a $1.5 billion investment. Nor are Biden Democrats doing all that well among the upscale voters repelled by Trump. The May 1st special election in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex resulted in the nomination of two Republicans in a district that Trump carried by only a margin of 51 to 48 percent last year. Republican candidates won 62 percent of the votes in this special election primary. Democrats collectively won only 37 percent. 
This may reflect liberal apathy. The audience for Joe Biden's April 28th speech to Congress was about 30% smaller than Trump's audience for his 2020 State of the Union. Viewership of the pro-Biden MSNBC and CNN is down by even larger percentages. And the never-Trump constituency seems to be fading as well. Now that Trump is out of office and off Twitter, Trump haters are no longer watching to savor his latest outrage and schmooze over it with like-minded friends. Meanwhile, upscale voters don't seem enchanted with the woke Biden agenda when they see it up close. Across the Metroplex, turnout was high as voters in affluent South Lake, Texas, this is down in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, they voted 70 to 30 percent to oust school board members who mandated critical race theory instruction, which the Biden Education Department wants to encourage. Their reactions were apparently similar to those of New York elite school parents, as reported by the Manhattan Institute's Kay Heimowitz. So much for, quote, systemic racism, unquote. Even in hyper-liberal Austin, 50% of voters reinstated a law banning camping in public spaces. The desire to keep Austin weird, quote-unquote, evidently doesn't go so far as endorsing California-style tent cities under every overpass. Biden's connection with homeless policy may be tenuous. Not so with what's happening on our southern border. Despite administration insistence that there's no problem, even Biden himself described it as a crisis. His insistence in his televised April 29th speech that it was under control did not impress Democrats with border constituencies. Arizona Senator Mark Kelly, a Democrat, says, and I quote, what I didn't hear tonight was a plan to address the immediate crisis at the border, unquote. Barone continues, again, I'm quoting, although Biden might say that we have everything under control, we're not paying attention to the border's communities. Laredo-based state representative, excuse me, U.S. Representative Henry Cuellar says, and I'm quoting here, it's not under control, I can tell you that, unquote. And Barone says Cuellar is right. 170,000 people were apprehended at the southern border in March, the highest monthly total since 2006. That's 15 years ago. Perhaps that's the reason for the retirements of border Democratic representatives Philemon Veya of the lower Rio Grande Valley and Ann Kirkpatrick, who represents Tucson and Cochise County in Arizona. There's no question that most voters, other than hardcore Democrats, reject the administration's spin, like Kamala Harris's pathetic claim that, quote, lack of climate adaptation and climate resilience, unquote, are causes of the surge of migrants at the border. A CNN poll shows 78% agreeing that the border is in crisis, while an NBC poll shows 59% disapproval to only 35% approval of Biden's performance on border security and immigration. So as 
Homicides increase in city after city at the highest rates ever measured. And tens of thousands keep crossing the border illegally. A lukewarm overall positive rating and a de-energized core constituency may not be enough for Democrats to hold on to their current tenuous majorities. Unquote. That's what Michael Barone wrote. Now, most of you listening to this program are familiar with a political consultant named James Carville. He's the guy who ran the so-called war room for a candidate named Bill Clinton, who was then the governor of Arkansas, but who went on, as we know, to be elected president in 1992 and reelected in 96. Carville has become a well-known commentator on national TV since that time. Well, the same Democratic strategist James Carville says that, quote, wokeness, unquote, is a problem that Democrats do not want to address because they fear being, quote, clobbered or canceled, unquote. Now, parenthetically, let me just mention here, wokeness or being woke means that you get it, that you've finally woken up to something that is a big issue and a big problem in this country that has been ignored or glossed over for a long, long time, but it can't continue. And you get it, and you're going to act correctly. I'm going to get back in a second here. Stay tuned and tell you what James Carville says about this. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. I return, and I want to continue with what I was saying about James Carville, who spoke to a writer from Vox Online magazine last month about the state of the Democratic Party and President Joe Biden's first 100 days. And Carville argued that the biggest problem his party has is with messaging and more specifically with language. Here's what Carville said. And I'm going to try to sound a little bit like James Carville, who is from Louisiana. So bear with me here. And this is a quote. You ever get the sense that people in faculty lounges in fancy colleges use a different language than ordinary people? Now, I like Biden in part because he does not adopt a different language of sorts to discuss politics. But these people I'm talking about, they come up with a word like Latinx that no one else uses. Or they use a phrase like communities of color. I don't know anyone who speaks like that. I don't know anyone who lives in a community of color. I know lots of white and black and brown people, and they all live in neighborhoods. Now, I don't mean the party should stop addressing tough issues like racial injustice only that they should address such issues using the same kind of language that voters use rather than jargon. Wokeness is a problem, and everyone knows it. It's hard to talk to lots of people in the Democratic Party who don't want to address 
this problem out loud because they're afraid they'll get clobbered or canceled. I disagree with those in the Democratic Party who say that messaging campaigns do not have to be ruthless. No, they're wrong. It really matters. I always tell people that we got to stop speaking Hebrew and start speaking Yiddish. We have to speak the way regular people speak, the way voters speak. I can look at voting results in the Rio Grande Valley. I can look at voting results in Miami-Dade. People who don't want to live like this are scared to address the issue of immigration because it might come out the wrong way. In politics, the best way to address people is to speak their language. Address people the way they address each other. Not like the faculty of the humanities department at Amherst. If you need wokeness, just go listen to National Public Radio. No one is using that language except for some of our people on television. You need wokeness, just go listen to NPR. I leave it on in my truck radio so I never fall asleep. Now, might there be enough voters who appreciated the folkness of wokeness to offset any losses? No, because most of the people who would appreciate that focus, they're likely to live in areas where Democrats would carry anyway. We won't win an election in a faculty lounge. That's just idiotic. That whole assumption is idiotic. And the number of people that have contacted me or had people contact me about this has been enormously gratifying. Everybody just wants this temperature to break. I get people. They're woke and tired of being woke. As the pandemic ends, People just want to return to their normal lives and not worry about whether they might lose their jobs for addressing someone in the wrong way. I mean, time and time again, you hear this from everybody, and of course people say, well, I don't want to say anything because I'll lose my job. Well, it so happens, I'm just at a point where there's nothing to cancel me from, so I don't care. Do what you want to do. People ask me, Will wokeness cost Democrats in the 2022 midterms? And I answer, it almost did in 2020. We did not do well. Any analyst I talk to and any politician I talk to ascribes it to the same thing. Wokeness. Now, that was James Carville, folks. That's what he had to say. And it's, I think, worth listening to coming from a Democrat who obviously believes that the emphasis that Democrats uh, are placing on wokeness is hurting them with everybody. Now, let's turn to something else. And this is a analysis of the 2020 electorate. A organization, major Democratic Party data firm called Catalyst, C-A-T-A-L-I-S, Catalyst, has released statistics on the 2020 election. Catalyst emphasizes that voter turnout in 2020 was the highest in over a century, higher than any election since women's suffrage in 2000, excuse me, in 1920, that's a century ago, or 
higher even than the Voting Rights Act in 1964, which vastly expanded the number of people of color who were eligible to vote beginning in the mid-1960s. So here are Catalyst's top 10 takeaways from their massive study. First of all, voter turnout, again, was up from 60% in 2016, which was pretty high, to 67% in 2020. That is the highest in, as we've just been talking about, a century. And not only that, this was the most diverse electorate ever. This is the first takeaway. The voting electorate continues to become more diverse, and last year was the most racially diverse electorate ever. This was due to big turnout increases in communities of color, particularly among Latino and Asian voters. The electorate was 72% white. That compared to 74% white, just 2% higher in 2016, and 77% white in 2008. So we've gone from 77 white to 72% white in the space of 12 years. This composition shift comes mostly from the decline of white voters without a college degree who have dropped from 51% of the electorate in 2008 to only 44% in 2020. And by the way, by and large, I think as everybody knows, those were Donald Trump voters. Here's the second takeaway from Catalyst study. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won with a multiracial coalition. The Biden-Harris ticket benefited from a diverse set of supporters. 39% of their coalition were voters of color, and the remaining 61% were split fairly evenly between white voters with and without a college degree. They also made significant gains among white voters compared to 2016, particularly among white college and white suburban voters. The Trump-Pence ticket was more homogenous with nearly 60% of their votes coming from white non-college voters, 85% white in total, and only 15% voters of color. Those are the top two takeaways from the Catalyst study, but I'm going to be back in the next segment with more takeaways on last year's election. Stay tuned. listening to the political insider with bill ballinger on mtn here's bill we are back we were discussing catalyst which is a major democratic party data firm and they released statistics on the 2020 election and i listed the top two takeaways they mentioned from last year's election some of this i know all of you have read and heard about this but this is a delve deep into some of the details behind certain facts of last year's election that I think everybody ought to be aware of. So I'm going to continue with this list. This is the third takeaway from Catalyst. Latino voters continued to favor Democrats, but Republicans made inroads with Latino voters, too. 
And Catalyst goes on to say, along with massive increases in turnout, Latino vote share as a whole swung towards Donald Trump by eight points in the two-way vote share compared to 2016, although Biden and Harris still enjoyed solid majority 61% support among this group. Some of the shift from 2016 appears to be a result of changing voting preferences among people who voted in both elections. And some may come from new voters who were more evenly split in their vote choice than previous Latino voters. This question presents particularly challenging data analysis problems for the Democrats, I might mention, which Catalytics discusses more in another section that I'm going to mention in a few minutes. Now, fourth takeaway. Black voter turnout increased substantially last year, resulting in significant gains for Democrats, despite a modest overall drop in a Democratic support level in this group. So let's look at that a little more deeply. Black voter turnout increased substantially, while overall black vote share swung towards Donald Trump by three percentage points compared to 2016. This dynamic, many more voters turning out, but at a slightly lower Democratic margin, resulted in more net Democratic votes from black voters in 2020 than in 2016, particularly in several key battleground states. For both black and Latino voters, we discuss how an expanding electorate might bring marginal voters into the electorate at slightly lower support levels. Okay, takeaway number five, Asian American and Pacific Islander voters saw the largest relative increase in turnout, which benefited Democrats. Even in a high turnout year, Asian American and Pacific Islander voters had a remarkable jump in turnout, the biggest increase among all groups by race. The number of Asian American Pacific Islander voters increased from 39% from 2016, reaching 62% overall turnout for this group. That's a big jump. AAPI, that's Asian American Pacific Islander voters, remain strongly supportive of Democrats, delivering a 67% vote share to the Biden-Harris ticket, largely consistent with past elections. So this was a group even though it's much smaller than Latino voters and black voters, which actually stayed the same in its level of support for the Democrats compared to the Republicans from previous elections. And the impact was not as great, obviously, because there is simply a much smaller share. But of, of the overall electorate compared to blacks and Latinos. But the important thing, I think, for Democrats is that these people are sticking with the Democrats better 
then blacks and Latinos are sticking with Democrats, at least between 2016 and 2020. Okay, here's the sixth takeaway. The urban-rural voting divide continues to be immensely important, with suburbs growing more Democratic and more racially diverse. The relationship between urbanity, that's living in urban centers, cities, the relationship between those people voting is essentially as strong as ever, though it did not grow wider in 2020 than in recent years. Rural areas continued to vote strongly for Trump, while Biden continued to enjoy dominant support levels in cities. There were slight changes in both, however, as Biden's vote share increased by 1% in rural areas and dropped by three points in urban areas. The Biden-Harris ticket maintained gains in the suburbs that began early in the Trump presidency. These gains are not all about white suburban voters, as is sometimes misunderstood. Suburbs are increasingly racially diverse, which accounts for part of the change in voting patterns. Here's the seventh takeaway. Women remain critical to the Democratic coalition. Women comprise 54% of the electorate overall and an even larger majority of the electorate among black and Latino voters. Women are 59% of all black voters and they're 56% of all Latino voters. Overall, women voters of color supported the Democratic ticket at a rate of 79%, while support among white women was less than 50%, only 48%. So Catalytics found a 10-point gender gap, with women supporting Democrats more than men fairly consistently across races. White college-educated women in particular have shifted against Donald Trump, moving from 50% Democratic support in 2012 to 58% in 2020, a trend that began in 2016 and continued in 2018 and 2020. So white college-educated women continue to move away from the Republican nominee, whether it was Donald Trump in 2016 or in 2020, whether that will continue with a different nominee if there is one in 2024 We'll have to see. Here's the eighth takeaway. Young voters drove record-breaking turnout. 2020's historic voter turnout gains were primarily driven by young voters. 18 to 29-year-olds grew from 15% in 2016 to 16% in 2020. That's 1% increase of the voting electorate. But the generation changes have been even more dramatic. Millennials and Gen X, these are people, you know, going back into the, certainly the 80s and maybe a little bit earlier, now account for 31% of voters, which is up from 23% in 2016 and only 14% in 2008. 
So that's a big shift among younger voters, millennials and Gen X, in the last two generations, born in the last two generations. Meanwhile, the older voters, baby boomers, and older generations have been gradually shrinking from 61% of the electorate in 2008 to 44% in 2020. Here's the ninth takeaway. New voters made a big difference, especially in Sunbelt swing states. I'm going to get into that in more depth when we return. That's the ninth takeaway. New voters made a big difference, especially in Sunbelt swing states. So stay tuned. The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and as I have said a couple of times before, Catalyst, C-A-T-A-L-I-S-T, Catalyst, is a major Democratic Party data firm, and it's released statistics on the 2020 election. And I've gone through the first eight takeaways that they came up with by studying the numbers from last November's general election. And I was just getting into the ninth takeaway when we had to take a break, and that is new voters made a big difference, especially in Sunbelt swing states. Catalysts saw large numbers of new voters across the country. Nationally, 14% of voters were first-time voters who we haven't seen vote in a previous even-year general election. This understates the change from 2016, however, due to many first-time 2018 voters and other sources of year-to-year turnover. When we compare state-by-state electorates from 2016 to 2020, 29% of voters were new presidential voters in their state in 2020. Some of these voters registered and voted for the first time in 2018. That's two years ago. Others were brand new in 2020 or moved from out of state. Turnover was especially large in Sunbelt battleground states. Now, here is the 10th and last takeaway from the Catalyst study. There are still millions of non-voters who could cast ballots in future elections. Electorates are dynamic, and millions of voters drop out and join the electorate with each midterm and presidential election. 2020 saw millions of first-time voters, even though campaigns and civic engagement organizations were not able to run traditional registration, canvassing, or get-out-the-vote operations due to the pandemic. At the same time, over 70 million eligible citizens did not vote in 2020, but may cast ballots in the future further changing the electoral landscape. Now, I've got a few other 
observations from the Catalyst study, and I'm just going to sum this up. The electorate has been getting a little more diverse each election cycle. That growth has been driven by increasing Latino and Asian American Pacific Islander voter shares, although those voters only make up about 15% of the electorate combined. White voters still make up more than 70% of the electorate, while black voters have held steady at roughly an eighth of the electorate. In other words, around yeah, 12 to 15%. The share of white voters without a four-year college degree is dropping at roughly the same rate from one election to the next as the non-white share is increasing. And the share of white voters with a four-year degree has remained steady at a little more than a quarter of the electorate. Notice that Joe Biden won the presidency by doing a bit better with white voters, about 4% better, especially those with a four-year degree than Hillary Clinton, while doing worse than she did among voters of color. This was particularly true among Latinos, a group that shifted from a roughly 70 to 30% Democratic margin in both the 2012 and 2016 two-party vote to a 63% to 37% Democratic edge. That's a drop of about 7%. This Democratic drop jumps out in the results, not only in heavy, heavily Latino South Florida and South Texas, but other places across the country with sizable numbers of Latino voters. So overall, again, I'll just mention this, about 60% Biden voters were white, while 85% of Trump voters were white. Here is more analysis of the 2020 election from a Democrat. This is a writer named Karen White who says, the increase in minority populations may not help Democrats in future elections. She says minority populations are growing in red states, not blue states. She continues, and I quote, There is more bad news from the census for Democrats. Not only is population falling in traditionally blue states and rising in traditionally red states, but the increase in growth in the minority population that was supposed to help Democrats is happening in red states. At first glance, this would seem to give credibility to radical Republicans like Tucker Carlson. As you know, he's a commentator on Fox News. And I'm quoting here from Karen White, who is a liberal Democrat. She says that Republicans like Tucker Carlson, who preach that minorities will replace whites in the U.S., the reality is that minority populations are still too small in red states to significantly affect the outcome of elections. In the red states with rising populations of minority voters, Democrats are not able to win the votes of enough conservative white voters to flip the states to blue or even purple. To make matters worse for Democrats, 
the shifting Democrats in the U.S., excuse me, the shifting demographics in the U.S. with populations moving from the economically depressed northern states that have traditionally supported Democrats to the economically vibrant southern and western states that have traditionally supported Republicans has resulted in increasing the number of electoral votes for those red states, reducing the number of electoral votes for the blue states with falling populations. In plain English, the advantage that Republican candidates already enjoy in the electoral college will increase. Why is this a problem? In 2016, Trump lost the popular vote, but he won in the Electoral College. In 2020, Biden's victory would have been reduced from 306 electoral votes to 232 for Trump to 303 for Biden, 235 for Trump. It would not have changed the outcome of the election because Biden won the popular vote in enough states. But if Biden had not won the popular vote by such a large margin, Trump could have run again, excuse me, won again in the Electoral College despite losing the popular vote. And Karen White continues, this is not unique. In the 2000 election, that's 20 years ago, 21, now that we're talking in 2021, George W. Bush lost the popular vote by about half a million, but he won the electoral vote. And Karen White says, yes, I know the outcome of that election is controversial, but my point is that Trump's unlikely victory was not a one-off event. It is something that we need to be concerned about as Democrats. And another reason why we need to get rid of the Electoral College. That's what the Democrats want. Republicans are making it even more difficult for Democrats to flip red states with the raft of new voter suppression legislation that is being passed in those red states. This has the effect of negating the increase in minority voters in red states by making it more difficult for them to vote. We also need to consider the makeup of the minority populations that are increasing. They are the Hispanic, the Asian American, and the multiracial. The minority group that has been the biggest supporters of Democrats has been black voters. But according to the census, the population of African Americans has plateaued. Democrats have only been able to win 60 to 65 percent of the Hispanic, Asian-American, and multiracial votes. Another reason why the party has had trouble flipping red states. So that's the bad news from Karen White, an avowed liberal Democrat. So I've given you a lot of numbers, folks, a lot of statistics, a lot of analysis. Put it all together, and I think you're ready for 2022, and for that matter, 2024. Thank you for bearing with me on this. We'll be back next week with more. Mm-hmm.